the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Rabbi Jonathan Burness is with us tonight. A look at his new book, A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. All right, then Rabbi Burness, we pick up the story. Uh, you went back and picked up a copy of that New Testament that you had been given by your wrestling coach, began leafing through it, and and as you did so, were there parallels? I mean, at, at what point did it begin to emerge this sense that, wait a minute, this Jesus of Nazareth, by gosh, he's actually Jewish. Well, Craig, it it was a complete shock for me. I just want to say this, first of all, that uh, as an encouragement to those that are listening, this wrestling coach had given me this Bible four or five years earlier, and it wasn't until uh, the, this point in my life where the Lord finally uh, used that seed. And I just want to encourage people that are listening that the Word of God never returns void, and don't give up on that loved one that you're sharing with. Uh, in answer to your question, Craig, it, it, it I saw this on uh, page one. The very first few verses of the New Testament were a complete shock to me. And, and many people listening maybe uh, read the uh, the lineages and just kind of or, or, or jump over them or wonder why are they there. But for me as a Jew to read uh, the, the, this lineage in Matthew in the very beginning, Jesus, uh, the son of Abraham. Uh, the son of David was absolutely shocking to me because here I had been brought up uh, believing that the New Testament was the book of the Christians and had nothing whatsoever to do with Judaism and on page one, on ch- in chapter one, in the very first verses I see Abraham and David Abraham the father of the Jewish people David the greatest king in our history and I had no idea how to process this I couldn't understand what these Jews, these prominent Jewish patriarchs, were doing in the Book of the Christians. And then went on to discover that this Jesus, this this Jesus Christ, the God of Christianity, was in fact Yeshua, which means salvation, that was his given Hebrew name, that he was born in Israel, not Rome, that he uh, was born of Jewish parents who were good Jews and made sacrifice in the temple, that all of his first followers were Jews, and his ministry was to his own people. I am but sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and went on to discover that these followers of Jesus did not convert to Christianity, but they were Jews who lived as Jews, who died as Jews, who had simply understood that Jesus was Yeshua, the promised Messiah of Israel. And that was just so eye-opening. It was life-transforming for me, Craig. But if you think that that was shocking, it was even a greater shock for me to go back to my own scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, uh, the writings, uh, and discover uh, these scriptures. Uh, by the way, there's another misconception that Christians have, that the Jewish people have, have read the scriptures and know them better than most Christians. It's absolutely untrue. I had never read my own Bible. And as I went through the Torah and the prophets, I discovered prophecy after prophecy, uh, that spoke of this Messiah, and I clearly saw Jesus, Yeshua, in so many of these prophecies uh, 
written hundreds of years before he was ever born. It completely changed my life. I wonder how many Christians under the false impression that they're ill-equipped to share their faith or minister to uh, a person of a Jewish background under that misconception, as you suggest, Rabbi, that, that well, most Christians you know, uh, clearly don't know Scripture nearly as well as the average Jewish person, which just must be steeped in memorization from top to bottom. It's totally untrue, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, because most Jewish people, which, and this was the case, my case, uh, what I had never read my own Scriptures, and about 90% of the Jewish community here in America are in that same boat. They, they have no idea what the Scriptures that they base their, their heritage on say. And that's why uh, I encourage believers, true Bible believers, to understand what the, uh, what's in the Old Testament uh, and to use the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Because there's so many prophecies, hundreds in fact, written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born that tell us where the Messiah would be born, when he would be born. Daniel 9 tells us he had to come before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that he would be born in Bethlehem, tells us what he would accomplish, why he would die, that he would die for our sins, that we would esteem him, uh, uh, that we would not esteem him, but that he would be stricken by God, and we would misunderstand that, in fact, he was uh, wounded for our transgressions, and by his stripes we are healed, as it says in Isaiah 53. The promise of the new covenant being made with the Jewish people where God would forgive their sins and remember them no more, Jeremiah 31. And it was, it was only then that I discovered, uh, after I had prayed at this Bible study, that I discovered these prophecies written hundreds of years before Yeshua, Jesus, was ever born. And as I said, it transformed my life. As it did so... What goes on in, in your heart and mind, and as you shared earlier, Rabbi, I mean, you, you, had, you had been through much of the study as a child, albeit not from a necessarily orthodox Jewish home. You were nevertheless practicing, very involved, very aware of your faith. Now, all of a sudden, you're reading through your own scriptures. This is not a broadside handed to you by Jews for Jesus. God bless them for what they do. You're reading your own scriptures and suddenly seeing some parallels between this man who claims to be Messiah and what and, and, and what you see inside of your own scripture. What's going on in your mind? Is there a sense of my, my own faith is crumbling or my own faith is becoming complete, that there's a, maybe a missing part of the, the equation, the puzzle, the picture that now all of a sudden is coming into focus? Well, the latter. I, 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 under, I began to understand uh, during this time that I hadn't converted to another religion uh, and left my Judaism, but in fact, uh, I was embracing uh, the true meaning and significance of what I was chosen for, to know God, to love Him, to have a relationship with Him. And I, I guess one of the other thoughts, Craig, was, why wasn't I told this earlier? Mm. Why was I lied to? Why was I told that the New Testament had nothing to do with our people? Uh, why did Christians apologize to me when I said I was Jewish uh, instead of telling me this is your Messiah, this is the most Jewish thing you can do? Those were some of the thoughts that went through my mind then, and I've spent the last 30 years uh, seeking to reach my own people with the gospel because the reality is that Jewish people have not rejected the gospel. They simply haven't heard a gospel that they can understand, and that's why also another reason I wrote the book. Mm. 
I think that's a very significant point you make here, too, and that is that oftentimes the presentation uh, has been, you know, albeit some occasions with malice, other times simply out of ignorance, not really presented in a a clear, logical fashion. Am I right? I I think it's just a a lack of understanding. Uh, Yes, I agree with you. I think it's a lack of understanding that Christians have about uh, Jewish people and the way we're taught, uh, and we need to overcome. I say it this way, just as missionaries have to travel overseas, uh, in, in sharing with Jewish people, you have to travel over a sea of misunderstanding. Yeah, you, you were just going to, your, your line of thinking is right where I was going to go. That sense that we, we've seen a rethinking of the old uh, Western model of of missions work, where you go into a nation, you, you plant a church, you invite people to come, uh, and you take the approach and you kind of you kind of model it after what is familiar from the westernized viewpoint of Christianity, which oftentimes make no sense in any given country. Why should we change someone's culture? It's not about changing their culture. God loves culture. He loves diversity. It's about changing a person's heart from within, and, and they're going in one direction, and they're, they're to do a U-turn, and, and uh, they're traveling away from God, and we're to turn them the, in the other direction and face God and walk towards Him. And it isn't to say that the message changes. It is the same Messiah, the same message for all mankind for all time. It is, as Paul, I guess, said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm all things to all men that I might win some. That that notion of being able to share one's faith in another man's language. It is. It's about language. When a Jewish person hears Jesus Christ, they don't hear Savior. They hear God of. Uh, of the Gentiles. When a Jew hears the word convert, uh, it's very threatening because for them it means to leave behind the heritage that they that was Im- in deeply embedded into them as a child uh, and, and the, the, the commitment to preservation. Is, but but uh, the word convert really means to, to, to do an about face. And so I, I make it clear that Jewish people don't have to leave their Judaism to find the Messiah that was promised through our own prophets. And, you know, that's so true. I mean, we understand the totality of the promises that are there in Scripture. I mean, I, I would suspect even as as you were being raised and you were studying the Torah and so forth, were there not references to Messiah, though, in the context of, of has yet to come? Well, uh, yes and no. They, they were there. They were often, often overlooked. In reality, there's no one view in Judaism about the Messiah. Many Jews have uh, completely uh, given up on the concept of a, of a literal Messiah and replaced that with a desire for a utopian age, uh, a messianic age, uh, that we bring about by our good deeds. Uh, sadly, we've strayed very far from Scripture and as a people, I think the Jewish people need to return to God. Yeah, and you see a lot of that uh, portrayed in, in, in so-called secularized Judaism, do you not? You, you do indeed. There's a, really a replacement of relationship with God and worship of God for the things that we can do, such as social justice, to bring about this utopian age. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, that runs so contrary into the understanding of grace uh, and, and and works. And I, and I guess that that that's an interesting insight too to help our listeners understand. You know, therefore, no wonder sometimes it is challenging in sharing the story of Messiah to a Jewish person who, under the circumstances that you're suggesting, uh, have have dedicated a life to the belief that it's based on works. And now all of a sudden we come and say, oh, by the way, it is not based on works. At least any man should boast, but strictly on what God has already done on our behalf. And, and I suppose that all of a sudden now you've got some short circuits going on in the brain that then runs contrary to what they've always understood or embraced. Indeed, and let me add to that, even the concept of blood sacrifice, of, a, of sacrifice needed to atone for sin, is something that has been lost uh, almost entirely to Judaism. And so why talk about a sin bearer, a Messiah, if you don't even recognize your sin? So if we as as Christians read the Old Testament and we see the stories of the sacrifices and what went on in the Holy of Holies and so on and so forth, much of that, even within the most orthodox of Judaism, is not taking place anymore. Am I correct? Well, I think that, that, that you're absolutely correct, and I think that there's been a redefining of Judaism, a reinvention of Judaism after the destruction of the Temple. So we've largely lost the, that connection back to the, the, the core understanding that God demands the shedding of innocent blood for the remission of sin. Indeed, I say it this way, there's a difference between Biblical Judaism of Torah and rabbinic Judaism that, that Judaism of today is based on. So as a young, eager Christian, you go to a Jewish friend and say, but don't you understand, Jesus died, he was sacrificed. He is the, he is the lamb without blemish who was sacrificed on your behalf. And they go, what? Huh? They do indeed, which is why I advocate things like Messianic Passover seders, uh, where you can help a Jewish person uh, or invite a Jewish person to an event that connects them with their history. The matzah, the 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 the, the four cups of wine, the uh, all of the different elements of the Passover uh, seder, uh, and you can they all point prophetically to the atoning work of Jesus at Calvary. A look at a rabbi looks at Jesus of Nazareth. Back to more of the conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus. Rabbi looks at Jesus of Nazareth. From your unique perspective, Rabbi Burnus, what would you say are some of the key things that we can be doing uh, as Christians in, in more effectively sharing the story of Messiah? I, I think largely, I mean, knowing of an audience, for example, like we have here in San Francisco, it isn't for a lack of love or compassion. I think, as you suggest, oftentimes it's just simply a, a lack of understanding. What would you say are some of the key things that Christians can do to become more effective at sharing the story of Messiah with our Jewish friends? Well, Craig, thank you. That's a great question. I think there's a number of things uh, I'd like to touch on. First of of all, is to break down those misconceptions. Understand that the Jewish person in your life, that God has put into your life, is not there by accident, that he's put them there for you to, to, to uh, provoke to jealousy, as it says in Romans 11, uh, 11 uh, to understand that, the, the, that they don't know the scriptures better than you do, that they haven't rejected the gospel than they need to hear. Uh, so breaking down those barriers. Uh, second, I think it's it's a it's a great value for Christians to understand the Jewish mindset. You can do this very simply. I go into enough detail in my book to to really help uh, Christians to understand what Jewish people hear. What 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 you mean to say to them is not what they're hearing. 
the third thing, uh, so there's some semantical things uh, that I talk about, words to avoid and uh, uh, language that I think uh, provides uh, more clarity. And, and the approach is different, as you were suggesting, between someone who is strictly of, say, a, a secular Jewish background versus somebody who um, has a religious background, such as yourself, to then tertiary, I suppose, someone who grew up in an Orthodox home? I think there's some differences, but in, in effect, you have to understand that felt needs are the same whether one's Jewish or not Jewish. Uh, the need for a sense of purpose and identity, uh, of what ha- the answering the questions in life that all of us need to face, why are we here and what happens to us after we die. Uh, when people go through a crisis, they, they, they're looking for answers. And I think that supersedes to a large extent uh, anyone's background. Um, but yes, indeed, sometimes uh, someone who's more orthodox uh, may be easier to share with if they're open because they adhere to, to the authority of the scriptures. Which, which leads me to my next point. I think that to learn some of the messianic prophecies and how to present them to a Jewish person and understand that the, that the, that the uh, disciples when they expounded on the scriptures and proved that Jesus was the Messiah, did not use the New Testament. They wrote the New Testament. They were using the Torah. They were using the prophets. They were using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And so I think it it uh, is very helpful to learn some of the, the key Messianic prophecies and how to present them, to learn how Jesus, uh, Yeshua, is at the center of some of the different uh, feasts of the Lord, the celebrations such as Passover and and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I think is very, very helpful. And then most importantly, to, to, to understand that only God can open up a person's heart. Uh, we have to open our mouth and share, but God can op- opens their heart. And so to pray and to get other people praying for that Jewish person that God has put into your life, I, I I can't emphasize enough how important that is, Craig. And I would suspect, too, as I found, at least this is true from my experience, that doing the research to understand the connection, for example, between a lot of the feasts and the parallels that we see, parallels that we see not only gives you tools to more effectively share Messiah with, with your Jewish friends, but for me also, it's like taking a trip to Israel. You know, it, it, it turns on a light. It, it opens up a deeper understanding and awareness of things that we see that I think helps a Christian better understand his own faith as well. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. It's so it's so enriching to go to Israel to learn some of these um, uh, types and foreshadows. It, I find with most Christians, uh, every everyone that has that has uh, that has studied the, these um, typologies, gone to Israel with me, and so on, uh, has found. Uh, it, it's deeply enriching, and that the relationship with the Lord has, has grown much closer. Now, I don't want to make this a commercial, but I want to spend a moment. Tell us more about your book and how you see potentially your book as being a tool uh, that can be used certainly by believers looking to reach their Jewish friends. But I wonder, too, then, the parallel, can this be a tool to, to effectively put into the hands of a Jewish friend? Well, absolutely. I wrote the book for two, two, two audiences. First of all, the Christian audience that has a Jewish uh, friend or co-worker or neighbor and, and also wants to learn uh, how um, the, the whole gospel message, not the gospel message as much as Christian theology has changed over the centuries 
uh, from what the scriptures actually teach, the whole idea of replacement theology and so on. I wanted to break down those barriers that keep Christians from sharing their faith, not just with Jewish people, but with people in general. So I talk quite a bit about evidential apologetics proofs uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. In we have, fact, to have to be careful to avoid subjects like, you know, being a strong promoter of British Israelism, things of that sort, exactly. too. Exactly. <laughs> and my premise is this. I say this at the, right in the beginning of the book, that it takes more faith when you look at all the evidence to reject Jesus as Messiah than to accept him. I can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is Messiah, uh, but, but when you look at the evidence, it's very, very strong. So I wrote it for Christians and helping them to better understand how to effectively share the gospel with that Jewish person in their life. But I also wrote it as a tool to give to an open-minded Jewish person uh, that, like me, was searching for, 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 uh, for the reason for life, that was searching for uh, truth. And there's many Jewish people out there that are open to to um, investigating the claims of, of Jesus. And, and I, I wrote this for them as well. So it's for open-minded Jewish people and, and for, for Christians that want to learn more about um, the Jewish person in their life. A word, if you would, Rabbi, about your ministry. Well, Jewish Voice Ministries International uh, was founded in 1967, right before uh, the reestablishment of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War. And we're a ministry that is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel to the Jew first, uh, anywhere in the world where the Jewish people are, are, where there's Jewish communities that are open to the gospel, and then secondly, to help educate uh, and mobilize Christians to be that light to Jewish people that God has called them to be. We undertake very large humanitarian projects to the Jewish communities in Ethiopia and India. There's large Jewish communities there that are impoverished. We do um, uh, festival uh, outreaches of music and dance where we share our faith. Uh, we're really a ministry. We, we believe we're a last days ministry that's helping to proclaim the gospel to Jewish people in a way that they can understand. And I like what you mentioned um, earlier on in our conversation that not only in terms of, of opening the eyes of, of Christians, but also an opportunity to effectively share uh, with Jewish people the notion of getting involved, getting information about um, a, a Passover Seder and, and learning all the connections and ties in there. Well, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity it is. It is indeed. And we, we actually have a church speaking department that has speakers that go to churches around the country and share things like a Messianic Passover Seder. It's an incredible experience if you've never seen one or been part of one. If folks want to get more information on that, Rabbi, they can contact you or get more details at jewishvoice.org? It's that simple, jewishvoice.org. Excellent. And the book as well, certainly through all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc., etc., but also through your website? Indeed, and chosen website. Uh, really hope that people will uh, find it uh, of value. A great tool. We appreciate the time and the education today. Craig, thank you so much for having me today, and uh, I really appreciate your ministry. Keep up the great We'll work. look forward to doing it again. There is Rabbi Jonathan Burness. Again, his new book entitled A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. And again, this new book uh, published by Chosen, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and details as too on the web, jewishvoice.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Gary Beckner joins us now, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. And I understand a, a new survey out, uh, cooperation between Gallup and Phi Delta Kappa, looking at the state and perception of public school education and the public teachers in America. Give us some of the, the highlights, if you would, Gary. Did, did we learn a lot about changing attitudes or changing perceptions based on the, uh, the experiences in places like Wisconsin and Ohio? Oh, we have. And by the way, Craig, thank you very much for allowing us to be on the air with you. We appreciate it. Even though we're the fastest growing national organization of our kind, we're probably still the best kept secret, too. So this is a a thrill to be on the air with you. Uh, Yeah, the Phi Delta Kappa Gallup survey, it it just came out this week, uh, indicates what we as an organization have known for quite a while uh, from our own surveys, that Americans um, are getting very frustrated with, and unfortunately, they're getting frustrated with teachers but that is misdirected, that anger, because the the Gallup survey actually kind of underscored what we know and that Americans really continue to support their teachers, but not their teacher unions. And that disconnect is really giving teachers a black eye. Uh, the survey showed that 71% of respondents said that they have trust and confidence in American teachers still. However, when asked about the teacher unions, only 47% Actually, 47% said they believe the unions have hurt education compared to only 26% believing that unions have helped education. So we've got to work hard to separate uh, this this synonymous uh, connection of unions and public education and get back to just uh, teachers and helping teachers to do what we do best. Do you think there's a level at which the the black eye that has come and again i agree with you i think a lot of the anger the frustration has been misdirected but do you think there's a level gary that a a degree to which the black eye that has been given to education by the unions uh, is deservedly sure absolutely when when you just follow the the takeover of public education by unions uh, since 19 the mid 1960s on i mean i I just want to go back for a second even even then, when it started to happen, when the unions started taking over public education, uh, even leaders of the NEA thought that was a bad idea. I mean, in a, in a Nostradamus uh, moment in 1968, the former NEA executive secretary, uh, Dr. Bill Carr, William Carr, warned the convention members at the NEA convention that this would someday lead to to, to to destroy the confidence of the public in, in education. Well, i got to tell you, because, and, I, and I asked that question, uh, Gary, not, not to necessarily throw uh, stones, but uh, years ago I obtained a copy of a publication that was produced by the NEA and the California Teachers Association entitled Guidelines for Academic Freedom in the Public Schools. And when I read what the union thinks about conservatives and uh, those that are concerned about getting their children a, a quality-based education that still protects the, 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 the mores of the family uh, and who the union considers to be their enemy. I was appalled. And I thought, you know, you're, you're painting the majority of the parents that send their kids to your schools as the enemy here, uh, and they're not the enemy. If anything, I think the perception by a lot of parents who really understand the agendizing of education that's been perpetrated by the unions, as as the unions being the real enemy of both teachers and students in education. Absolutely. There, There is so much evidence just following. There's a wonderful book written by Dr. Um, Dennis Cuddy, 
C-U-D-D-Y of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, some, some years back. He was working in the uh, Reagan administration, I believe. Could have been could have been a George Bush senior, but I think it was Reagan. And he did. He just was flabbergasted when he started uh, coming up against some of the education reform initiatives that the Department of Education was trying to put out, and then seeing the pushback from the, from the NEA in particular. The AFT was there as well, pushing back. But he started investigating the history of why they would be so against reforms that would be in the best interest of teachers and especially kids. And he discovered that they have an agenda that has nothing to do with educating our children and has very little to do with actually protecting and helping our teachers. It's all about changing, transforming this country from a republic into a socialist nation. And if you and you you think we overspeak this, but we can give you the booklets and we can show you from our own research, actual document that we produce called Powerful Failure, how the National Education Association fails to use its influence for education to show you that their agenda has nothing to do with education and very little to do with helping teachers. Oh, I tell you what, uh, Gary, you're preaching to the choir here. I don't think you overspeak it. If anything, I might suggest maybe you underspeak it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the agenda that is promoted by the unions that actually is sole and separate from the agenda supported by most, you know, rank and file teachers are, are miles apart. You know, it's interesting because I have long believed that, that education is a partnership, that it ought to be a, a dual responsibility between the parents and the teachers. I don't think that parents ought to just dump their kids on uh, public educators and expect them to come back, you know, after a six or seven hour study day. Uh, brilliant. Uh, there's no accountability. There's no effort put in oftentimes by parents today. And I think that's a dirty shame. And I think the poor performance numbers that we're seeing in many of our schools across the country, the, the responsibility of which needs to be borne out by both the teachers and the parents. That said, I have often wondered why so much pushback by the unions. Hello, CTA, are you listening? Why so much pushback by the unions to create any kind of system of accountability? i got to tell you, one of the most dangerous things, I think, to public education or the success thereof today is this whole idea of tenure and the idea that just by the amount of time in service, you somehow magically reach the location or, or, or the position in your scholastic career career as an educator where you're now exempt from any level of accountability, that you no longer ought to fear a lack of performance, uh, you know, that doesn't happen in the private sector. If I don't perform at my job, the boss will come in one day and say, you got to straighten up and fly right, or guess what? There's 10 other talk show hosts sitting behind you that'd be happy to have your job. Why do the unions t- think that teachers ought to be exempt from that level of accountability? Well, Craig, uh, you'll be first of all. You'll be happy to know that it's the union's agenda. It's not necessarily a teacher's agenda. I mean, our own surveys have indicated that our membership, which you have to understand, our members would be people that are looking for an alternative, a professional alternative to labor unions. So they would have a different point of view. But these are top teachers. These are national teachers of the year. These are good people, and they would agree that our our last survey showed that seventy three percent of uh, our members thought that the Colorado policy, the new policy for teachers in that state, where teachers can lose tenure if they're deemed ineffective for two consecutive years, our guys, by a vast majority, thought that's a good idea. I mean, there's, there should be no 
job for life, especially if it has nothing to do, especially if you're a poor performer. I mean, it's just, so you'll be happy to know that many, many, many teachers agree with that. Well, I know that some that have told me and confided in me privately have said, you know, uh, there's, there's nothing worse for our profession than those who are tenured, who have given up, who maybe should never have been in the profession in the first place, and as a result of their protected status by the unions, ultimately drag everybody down. You know, that notion of one bad apple ruins the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Well, remember, the union's job is to protect jobs. That's their job. And their their goal uh, is to make sure that uh, legislatively across the country, as in California, this is a constant battle in states across the country, 27 states in this nation the unions, like in California, are allowed to take dues from teachers' paychecks, whether the teachers want to have be represented by that union or not. See, I'm I'm comfortable with the role of unions in collective bargaining and protecting you know teachers' rights and teachers' benefits and and you know uh, work labor uh, labor hours and things of that sort. I'm fine for all of that. Uh, my problem, Gary, is when the so-called interests of the union or interests of the teachers are now running contrarian to what is in the best interest of the parents and their students because in the end teachers have to realize these kids don't belong to you and the minute you think that you've got so-called academic freedom to begin teaching a standard or a moral that runs contrary to what is taught in my household we got a big problem that's right well change is only going to come when enough of america's teachers wake up to the fact that being inextricably linked to labor unions will never allow them to get the kind of respect and rewards they seek and, and Put it another way, here's the bottom line. Teachers will never get the pay they deserve if they continue to be linked with organized labor. All right, I want you to stop on that for a moment, Gary, because I have got the 64,000, oh, it's more than that. It's got so many zeros behind it. The question is unbelievable. I have a question for you that I have yet to have a professional educator ever be able to answer for me. Maybe it's going to be a first here on Lifeline. We're talking with Gary Becker, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. Bit of a different tone, as you perhaps detect, from what has been the typical dialogue with representatives of the CTA or the NEA for some inexplicable reason who will no longer come on this program. Don't know why. We'll, t- <laughs> we'll see if Gary's still on the line when we come back after the... Nah, he's brave. I'll be good to you, Gary. But I got a question I think you'll find fascinating. Let's come back with more of our conversation right around the corner. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. All right, Gary, did I lose you? No, I'm here. You're still I'm there. A bra- you're a brave man, Gary. All right. Here, here, multiple choice. Here is the question that uh, multiple presidents of the California Teachers Association on this program have refused or have been unable to answer. Um, and we even had a spokesperson from the NEA, the national level, uh, not, not answer either. All we ever hear when we talk about budget cuts and trying to manage the budget, in a state like California, for example, 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education. Okay? So if we have a $110 billion budget this year, $55 billion is going singularly to education. We think about everything the state of California does, and 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education. And then our kids cross the uh, the stage there when they receive their diploma and can't even read the diploma. We know something's wrong. Here's my question for you. 
California on average, and, and, and we're going to be generous, kind of work with me here for a moment with the numbers, Gary. California on average is spending about $10,000 per student. Can we agree to that? Yes. And on average, most classrooms have about about 30 students. Would you agree? Little less than little that. less than that, but 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 ballparkish. Yeah. All right. So if it's ten thousand per students and about thirty, stu- let's, let's tell you what we'll go with a smaller number. We'll say twenty five students. So ten thousand dollars per student and twenty five students per classroom. That means twenty two hundred and fifty thousand dollars by my math. Am I right? Yes. Okay. $250,000. Would I be overly generous, Gary, if I said that $50,000 was going to the educator's salary? Uh, that's low for California. That's low for California. All right. So what are they making? 60000 64, average. 64,000? Yep. Average. All right, 64,000. So let, let, let's let's just take it over the top. We're we're going to say uh approximately uh, after we've paid the teacher who's earning an average of about $64,000, we'll do some round numbers here. Uh $185,000 of the 250,000 per classroom that we began with is left over. Can you explain to me where is that money going? <laughs> So this is a true-false question, or this is you actually want to know where the money is? I want to know where the money is going, because I have yet, even Jack O'Donnell, our former uh, superintendent of public instruction, when I challenged him on this thing, I said, you were constantly asking for more money. Our teachers are typically underpaid for what they have to put up with, the hours that they put in, and the vast responsibility that they have. Look, I think most of you ought to be paid $100,000 a year, no questions asked. Right. But then, as we're constantly hearing the unions beg for more money, more money, more money, more money. I've got to wonder where is all of this money going? If it's not going to the teachers, and in many areas of the state, we own the buildings outright, how are we managing to spend $185,000 per classroom that's not going to the teachers? Okay, well, I've got an answer for you, but it was a long question, so you have to give me a minute to develop it. All yours. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that as an educator organization, uh, we would agree uh, we obviously agree that an educated public is the most important factor in maintaining our republic. Uh, so we would agree that to pour, we would agree to pour more money into the system if, and here's the big caveat, if it could be guaranteed that that money would actually reach the classrooms for teachers' salaries and student materials and, and conditions, et cetera, and not be gobbled up by the bureaucratic blob controlling our public education system today. Now, let me give you an example by way of New Jersey, a new film, what's happening, which underscore what's happening in California and where that money goes. In New Jersey, there was a new uh, documentary that just came out on the heels of another great documentary called Waiting for Superman, uh, and this one's called The Cartel. And it shows what's happening in New Jersey, which is absolutely a, correlate, a, a you know, corollary with what's happening in California and in other large uh, states uh, where the unions are holding sway. And that is, it showed that there are over 400 school administrators in Newark, one city, that made at least $100,000 a year. 400 administrators in Newark that made at least $100,000 a year. Not one teacher made $100,000 a year. So this whole system is so upside down that the money goes into a black hole, but it's kind of an inverted pyramid, 
and it stays at the top. By the way, these union leaders that never will come on, they won't talk about this either because these are some of the highest paid guys in the state. And that's off the backs of teachers' dues, which comes out of taxpayer money as well, as you know. So the money goes down a black hole, and it's called the bureaucratic blob. We have more administrators in jobs doing nothing. We don't even make some of these administrators even step foot in the classroom and teach anymore. That are It's just like our United States government. We have... What was it? By the year 2025, there are going to be more people in the Department of Agriculture than there are going to be farmers. Well, that's what's happening to our public education system today. Let me interrupt you, Gary, and say what a breath of fresh air. You have done. You've gone where no man has dared to go before. You have finally... I knew the answer, by the way. I was waiting for an educator to finally have the guts to articulate the answer. California, and this is not real recent information, but some of the research that we have done, when you look at the layers of bureaucracy, as we have, you know, the local board of of education, and then we got the state board of education, and then we got the feds on top of that, and everybody having something to say, on average, we're looking at three people collecting a salary in the state of California attached to education for every one actual educator in the classroom. Yeah. I tell you what, Gary, that's not wrong. That's criminal. It is criminal. And the fact that you've got administrators that are these these glorified paper pushers that add nothing, not one iota of quality to a child's education. Sorry for those of you that do it and are listening right now. You can send me the hate email later. Not one adding one iota of a caliber of education in the classroom to any of our kids. You know what? I tell you, I could free up money to increase teacher salaries overnight. We would deal with the lack of school materials and books and and overcrowded classrooms overnight. I would go through and lock, stock, and barrel, number one, we don't need three layers of administrators telling the teachers what to do. Look, let a local school board make the decisions. The state level, the feds, goodbye, you're out of business, gone. And this whole idea of three administrators for every one classroom teacher, flip that around. If you flip it around, I'm okay with that. I wish that your colleagues would have the guts to go publicly with this crime that is being perpetrated on taxpayers and parents and students and pull back the covers you just did now here on radio and, 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 and let everybody know that what is fundamentally wrong with education today is the stranglehold the unions have on the teachers and the stranglehold that the bureaucracy has on education. I couldn't have said it better, and apparently it's a good answer. So do I get $64,000? You know what? If if you work with us to get more people educated in this arena, Gary, absolutely, and then some. Hey, we're out of time. I want to have you back on, Gary. I'm sorry we're out of time here. We're going to get you scheduled on earlier next time on the program. Um, I like this organization. And finally, somebody that knows how to tell the truth. American Association of Educators, aaeteachers.org. If you're a teacher, find out more about them. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.